Hi everyone, welcome back for another EGO's MRCI podcast. My name is Rochelle Kernan and today we have Dr. Rita Okorafor. She is an assistant professor in the Harold Vance Petroleum Engineering Department at Texas A&M. Hi Rita, how are you doing today? I'm doing great today, and you? Oh good, thank you so much. I'm very happy to finally have the opportunity to speak with you. So Rita, to start off today, could you please share with our audience where you grew up uh, and then maybe something that influenced you while you were growing up or inspired you to become a geoscientist? Where did I grow up? I grew up um, primarily in Nigeria. Um, The state is River State. Uh The location Okay. Though I am originally from um, a place, a town called Omoku in River State. And Omoku is a producing, an oil producing area. Uh, my father was um, a lecturer. He also followed the academic path mm-hmm. at the University of Port Harcourt in Nigeria. And he studied geography. He was a lecturer of geography. But by that time, there wasn't much about petroleum engineering then. Okay. So most of his geography was, you know, um, employed towards things like the development of um, the oil and gas industry. Um, he did, you know, more of the economics of oil production and things like that. So what really influenced me um, growing up was growing up in an academic environment. Um, I really love the intellectual discussions between my father, um, my siblings, my mom as well. I have um, six siblings, five sisters and a brother. Mm-hmm. Um, the friends we also had were all from the academic environment. And so for me, it was something I just found myself desiring to continue in an academic environment. Sure. Now, specifically to um, the, the career path I chose. Um, I'm a petroleum engineer. Mm-hmm. My my dad, of course, I mentioned was um, studied geography. And so he had lots of books about geography. And I really love geography, like passionately. Uh-huh. I don't think um, anything comes close to that in terms of, um, you know, technical concepts. But at the same time, I was very good at drawing and I was very good in mathematics when I finally realized myself. And so I needed something that could combine this geography with the mathematics, with the science and um, the drawing as well. And then what came to mind by the time I consulted my elder sister, she was like, petroleum engineering is going to be very good for you. So it ties in all of those things together. Uh And that was how I decided to pursue um, studies in petroleum engineering. Oh, that's such a great story. Uh, could you also share with us where you went to school, uh, what degrees you have, and maybe a story about uh, your career path through those degrees? Oh, sure, definitely. So um, I went to the University of Potakot. In fact, the University of Potakot had a primary school, a secondary school, and then the university. And I went through all of that. Um the University of Potakot had petroleum engineering as one of its causes, so I enrolled there. It was very close to home. 
uh, we lost our dad when he was when we were really young. So we just wanted to stay very close to our mom. So I don't think there's any of us that didn't go to the University of Port Harcourt. So that's where we were. And that's where I went to school to have my first degree, which was um, a B.Eng. in petroleum engineering. Mm -hmm. Then after graduation, um, there was the Institute of um, Petroleum Studies that was formed, I think two years after my graduation. And this was a collaboration between the IFP school in France and the University of Port Harcourt, as well as um, Total, which is now Total Energies, a collaboration between these three um, organizations to build the kind of institute that would advance knowledge in petroleum engineering. And so I joined that program and I got um, an MSc in petroleum engineering and project development. And that was way back in um, 2004. Mm -hmm. Immediately after that, um, I got um, a job with Slumbershay in Nigeria. So I started my career through um, from then on. And it wasn't until 2017 that I decided to um, go back to school. And that was when I went to do my PhD working in the geothermal So I've noticed that you have been posting or you post a lot on LinkedIn and I love following you. You have a degree in petroleum engineering and that has been your emphasis, but I noticed that you've been posting a lot about carbon capture and you're a co-author on other publications. Can you tell me more about other research that you've been undertaking? So my PhD was in geothermal energy. Awesome. And so I do um, a lot of work on geothermal energy, especially subsurface modeling. Mm -hmm. And um, I have a couple of um, publications of, on that, though maybe you haven't seen them. And then one of the things that really struck me when I started doing my research in geothermal energy was how very closely the skills I had as a petroleum engineer, I was using them in the geothermal energy space. Yeah. And the kind of challenges we talked about in, in, in geothermal energy industry were similar to challenges in the oil and gas industry, though there were a lot of advances in the oil and gas industry. Mm -hmm. And, you know, having spent close to 13, 14 years in the oil and gas industry, I had seen the impact of R&D yep. in advanced technology in the oil and gas industry. And all I could just tell myself was, if we could invest as much in geothermal energy, we may also be able to do more in that space because there's so much similarity between the geothermal energy industry and the oil and gas industry, um, save a few um, differences. Yeah. Now, um, after doing the geothermal, my PhD in geothermal industry in the um, in the energy space, I was privileged to work with another set of um, advisors on carbon capture and storage, as well as on the ground hydrogen storage. And this, to be sincere, I was very scared to go into all of that because, okay, I'm oil and gas. I spent four years looking at geothermal energy and you're asking me to look at CCS and hydrogen. But surprisingly, again, I found that, that it's the same skills that I knew as um, an oil and gas reservoir engineer or dealing with um, different teams that, do, you know, geology, deal with the well bores, mm -hmm. deal with production. 
it's the same kind of skills that we were going to use again to go into CCS and underground hydrogen storage. Mm -hmm. So um, the learning curve initially was steep, but once I just found out that it was knowledge transfer and skills transfer, I was able to, you know, look into um, developing site selection criteria for carbon capture and storage. Mm -hmm. So how do we do our pre-site um, assessment? Um, and then going into hydrogen, doing something similar as well, but also taking into account the kind of complexities and intricacies we see with uh, underground hydrogen storage and porous media. Yeah. So those are the kind of things I look at. And so um, I didn't decide to choose one over the other. You know, I didn't want to just focus on geothermal or CCS or hydrogen because for me, I just felt I was applying a principle across different things. I was just dealing with a different fluid, sure. but the same principles. And so I tell myself that my research area is just low carbon energy technologies that are related to, or I can apply skills from the oil and gas industry. Yeah. Yeah. That's so great. I, I love that. And I love how you communicated it. I have a specific question though, with regard to your PhD in geothermal, can you share mm -hmm. with our audience, some of your specific findings or tell us more about what you did for your PhD? For my PhD, I was looking at, um, fracture characterization uh -huh. in enhanced geothermal systems. So with um, enhanced geothermal systems, we are dealing with rock that is of low permeability and doesn't have fluid contained in it. And, but it's hot. It has, um, you know, it's hot. It's very hot. We, we consider the principle of creating pathways artificial permeability pathways in which we could inject water that is cold, circulate that water and extract um, hot water because by the time the water gets in touch with the rock, heat is transferred and we can heat up this water. The heated water can then be used for um, power generation, can be used for direct use, ETC. But one of the challenges was that when we create these fractures, the fractures previously have been treated as, you know, parallel wall, that we just have smooth interfaces between these pathways. In reality, there were studies that showed that these fractures weren't um, smooth. They weren't parallel walled as we um, assumed they were. Mm -hmm. And they had what we call, um, we had, they, they had asperities or just roughnesses in quotes, because it's not really roughnesses, but it's just that it wasn't smooth. Mm -hmm. Consider an undulating part, for instance. And so if we inject water into the rock mm -hmm. and the water passes through those fractures, there is a possibility of channeling, which means the fluid will look for the more permeable pathways and follow that pathway. Mm -hmm. And we may not entirely cover the whole area that we thought we have, and this will reduce um, the Temp thermal, you know, the temperature that we extract from the rock or the heat. Mm -hmm. So the, the main issue I was trying to address was if this is the case, it means that our models trying to predict the performance of an enhanced geothermal system may not be very accurate until we consider this 
fracture roughness. And my PhD was looking at taking into consideration the fracture roughness. What's the implication? Um, how can we predict the temperature drawdown or the, te you know, the temperature we're going to get throughout the life of the field? Um, if we do have fractures that are not smooth. And the second thing I was trying to look at was, could, could there be anything we could do to try to increase our chances of extracting heat, even though we know that these fractures have roughnesses? And one of the things we realized was that depending on where you position your well relative to the angle or the direction in which the fracture was created, you could have a different, what I call thermal performance. And so um, just knowing that one direction was going to give us better thermal performance than another direction was one of the things that um, was a finding from my research. And then um, one other thing I tried to look at was in the event that we don't have water, Mm -hmm. And we have to use CO2 from somewhere. Maybe we have a CO2 source that we're considering to sequester. Because there's a chance that we can use CO2 in a plant um, or a, a cycle that does not allow you know, the CO2 to be emitted back into the surface, we could actually use it to extract heat from the rock. Uh -huh. And so my research was also trying to see if we're going to use CO2 and if the rock is not smooth or the fracture is not smooth and we have those fracture roughnesses, what will be the implication for heat extraction? And um, I, so that was one of the things I looked, uh, I looked at. And uh, I think I have a, a recent paper yeah. on that. I could yeah. probably share that. It just was published a few days ago. Thank you so much for sharing more about your research. I find it really fascinating. And um, yeah, congratulations. Thank you. Do you foresee any new trends or development in your field in the next uh, maybe five years or 10 years? Do you kind of foresee how things could evolve or change as we go through the energy transition? Yes, so I've been looking um, a lot on CO2 storage, underground hydrogen storage. Now, with regard to CO2 storage, there's been a lot of research that has gone into that space. Mm -hmm. And what we'll be seeing in the next few years will be deployments of projects. And this will help with our understanding of CO2 storage in the subsurface. Yeah. And we would know how good it is. We would know if all the things we anticipated or we have modeled or predicted is actually true. So we're going to be in the next five years gaining better understanding of CO2 storage in the subsurface. Uh -huh. Now, there's a lot of interest in underground hydrogen storage. Yep. And this is because we foresee a time where the demand for hydrogen is going to grow because hydrogen is a fuel that is zero emitting of um, CO2 as well as greenhouse gases. Mm -hmm. So um, with that anticipated demand, we are thinking of how can we store. And hydrogen can be generated from several ways. Um, solar, wind, nuclear, geothermal, you know, or whatnot. Uh -huh. So we could generate hydrogen through several means, even fossil fuel. So people are beginning to investigate the possibility of underground hydrogen storage in porous media. Mm -hmm. And 
it's something we don't totally understand at this point in time. Yeah. So I also foresee a lot of research in that area going on for the next five years, trying to build some understanding of the behavior of hydrogen in the subsurface. Um, there's been a lot of the opportunity announcements and interest going towards that. So that's one of the things I see would happen. And then again, in the next 10 years, we would know if it's feasible, if it's worth it, or if we should be looking at new materials um, to be storing hydrogen. So things mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, yeah, no, that's really great. Thank you for sharing that with us. And then also just to help maybe some of the students that listen to this podcast or uh, younger people in general, do you have any best tips or any advice for them as we go through this energy transition and maybe they're not exactly sure sort of which direction to go or which courses to take or which avenues to pursue? Do you, do you have any advice for them? Um, I might have a couple. Um, if anyone is in my university, I teach a course on subsurface engin uh, engineering for uh -huh. sustainable energy. Yeah. And that looks at applying the principles of oil and gas industry, what we have learned as petroleum engineers, and just transferring that knowledge to geothermal energy, carbon capture and storage, as well as underground energy storage. I think, um, as far as I know, that is the... Um, course that puts everything together, uh -huh. but different universities offer programs that teach geothermal energy separately, carbon capture and storage separately, and underground energy storage separately, or that's still evolving. Uh -huh. So um, my advice for um, students, first of all, is they shouldn't be afraid of the energy transition. Mm -hmm. We all have relevant skills. Mm -hmm. And um, we as human beings, we can adapt. There's really nothing to be afraid of. Companies are still learning. Organizations are still learning. We can't say we have understood everything yet. And so there might just be a period where maybe there isn't as much hiring as we expect. But there will be a time when those skill sets that they have as petroleum engineers will be needed for this space for the energy transition. And, you know, as geoscientists, the same skills that we use in the geosciences, we can use it in different areas of, um, of we can use it in different areas of the energy transition. In one of the skill sets mapping I was looking at, I was amazed at how valuable the geoscience skills were to all of the areas of the energy transition, practically all. Mm -hmm. So it's just for people to understand that their skills are relevant and well, the workforce at this point in time, or it might not be at this time employing as much jobs, but it will happen in the future. Yeah. Um, the, the second thing that I would um, also like to say is, um, if anybody's in waiting, continue to develop your skills. You never know when it's going to be needed. Um, knowledge of um, digital technology, data analytics, machine learning, you know, if you have the time, build on these things, um, it's going to be relevant. Back in the days, if you knew Excel and PowerPoint, you are such a hero, a big hero in the organization. 
now I think that digital skills are going to be very relevant in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And I think um, about two years ago, when I was looking at job opportunities, I found that, that most openings were for people with digital skills. So imagine that we want to improve our workflows concerning the energy, automate processes. We want to make processes more efficient. You know, we will st we will need a lot of digital skills and um, people. It will be right. It will be great if people can you know get those skills. Um, universities are currently finding ways to infuse it in their curriculum, and I think that that's a great idea. Mm -hmm. Finally, I would say always try to understand who you are. Mm -hmm. And why I would say it is because um, I went through a process of trying to get a job when I finished my PhD. And despite my years of experience, despite the fact that I had a PhD, I was about to get a PhD. When I went for certain interviews and we reached the stage of you know, trying to find if I was a good fit. It wasn't just working out. Mm -hmm. So it was a waste of my time and efforts. And then a friend of mine called me and said, you know, if you had, if you were to apply to um, a place, you know, academia, for instance, or an institution, or she told me then that after knowing all the places that had told me then, and she said, if Stanford offered you a job as a postdoc, would you take it in place of the other ones that you have? And I said, yes. Then I was still um, doing my PhD. And she said, that should tell you who you really are, uh -huh. that you really enjoy being in the academia. Yeah. So try to look for jobs towards that, that area. And I think that was what just changed my whole approach to a job search and what I should be doing. Yeah. Um, it was really helpful. So I think taking the step back to understand what you like what you really enjoy doing, what wouldn't be so stressful to you, would help you to know how to go about um, set, searching for jobs. And when they turn you down, it's not because you're not good enough, or maybe you're not a fit and it's not your fault. It's just that that's not the way yeah, their company is built. In fact, one that makes me laugh, you know, when it happened, I, I was almost crying. I had prepared months for this particular job. Uh -huh. And then when they asked me, what would I like to do with them? I said, I'm really interested in, you know, developing education across, you know, Africa, you know, making sure that people have access to good education. And I kept talking about education and education and education. And, you know, after the interview, they just told me, we're sorry, we are not taking you. Uh -huh. So during that moment of pressure, I just brought out who I truly was. I was really passionate about education. Yeah. And so I wasn't a good fit. And it wasn't wrong that I wasn't a good fit for them. Yeah. You know, so I just should have known that earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that personal story with us. I, I completely agree with your point in that, you know, you really have to get to know yourself and just be very honest with yourself and you have to follow your passions um, at the end of the day. So thank you very much for sharing that with us. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. Well, Rita, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your time. It's, as I had mentioned earlier, it's really an honor and a privilege to finally get to chat with you. And yeah, please keep in touch. I definitely will. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for the opportunity. 
and I hope this podcast will be relevant to somebody mm-hmm. or many people. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you for all you do. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. This podcast is sponsored by the Midwest Regional Carbon Initiative, which is a structured five-year program funded by the U.S. Department of Energy. It is co-led by Battelle and the Illinois State Geological Survey. The initiative works to connect science, technology, and research to advance CCUS acceptance and deployment in 20 states across the Midwest, Mid-Atlantic, and New England regions of the United States.